Blog Talk Radio. From Lives in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at Home. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help your challenging child and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach at home. If you have a question or comment, call 347-994-2981. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about your challenging child and what we can do to help you make things better. Well, hello there, and uh, welcome to today's program. Uh, I'm sitting in my office in the Department of Education in the School Psychology Program at Tufts University. I couldn't quite get to the offices of Lives in the Balance for the program today, but um, uh, teach a course here and have many uh, students who are learning about collaborative problem solving. Uh, so, see, there's hope um, that... Um, yeah, by the way, we're going to make sure that uh, collaborative problem solving is the way things are done in schools one of these days. It's a long process, but, um, well, I think I have some students in my class who are going to be leading the charge. Uh, but welcome to today's program, uh, Collaborative Problem Solving at Home. Uh, if you have a question or comment, of course, uh, that number is 347 994 2981. Lives in the Balance sponsors uh, these programs, not only the one for parents today's, but also one for educators and one for staff who work in restrictive therapeutic facilities. Um, just to make sure that people out there who are living with or working with kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges get the support they need and get whatever kind of help they need implementing collaborative problem solving. So if you're uh, got a child in your home who you're having trouble helping do Plan B, uh, having trouble with any aspect of doing Plan B yourself, uh, running into difficulty getting the folks at school to use collaborative problem solving, having difficulty getting your co-parent or the grandparents or the hockey coaches to buy in, this is your opportunity. We do this every week. Call in, comment, ask questions, get the support you need. Or if you're not the calling in type, just listen to what's going on with others who are using the collaborative problem-solving approach. Once again, if you want to call in, the number is 347-994-2981. Uh, and you can always send me a question electronically through the contact form on the Lives in the Balance website, and that's www.livesinthebalance.org. Um, don't have any particular topic for today's program, and I'm seeing that we have no callers at the moment. So I'm going to dive into the many emails that have accumulated from people, and let's see if we can start um, getting some of these questions answered. Here we go. Uh, I'm trying to use collaborative problem solving with my four-year-old. My difficulty right now is that there really don't seem to be any predictable triggers to her explosions. This morning it was simply that she wanted me to put her slippers on before we came downstairs. Any other day, that may not have been a problem. Any ideas for how to use Plan B when you don't have any specific problems that you can discuss with the child? Uh, any help would be most appreciated. I am a bit desperate at this point. Well, um, 
happy to try to weigh in here. And um, yes, there are many parents who are trying to help challenging kids who feel the same desperation that you do. Um, nothing worse than feeling like you're not exactly sure what's getting in a child's way and what it is that you should be working on to try to help make things better. Um, luckily, collaborative problem solving does provide answers to both of those questions. What's getting in the way? Lagging skills and demands for those skills. How do you figure out what skills your child is lacking? The assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems that can be downloaded directly from the Lives in the Balance website. Just go to the paperwork section. That's sort of step number one. Who is my kid? Um, and I didn't read this part of your email, but your uh, daughter has a medical diagnosis that, um, so she also has epilepsy and brain tumors, and um, yet we'd want to do as much about the epilepsy and the brain tumors as we could, not my field. But if we want to reduce challenging episodes, um, we're going to also want to figure out what skills your daughter is lacking and see if that helps make challenging episodes more predictable. And as you mentioned in your email, we want to figure out what unsolved problems are setting in motion challenging episodes. Now here's the deal. Just because an unsolved problem doesn't cause a challenging episode every day doesn't mean that it's not worthy of discussion. Truth is, there aren't many unsolved problems that I've come across that set in motion a challenging episode every time. What you're looking for is unsolved problems that have the potential to set in motion challenging episodes. And how do you know they have the potential to do that? Because they've set in motion a challenging episode before. And so, because we now have at least one trial, one example of your daughter wanting her to have slippers on before she came downstairs, um, that would be on my list of unsolved problems. If it's happened before, then we know that it has the potential to happen again. And as is always the case, we'd much rather be trying to solve these problems proactively rather than emergently. So wanting slippers on before you go downstairs, well now, one question that I might have is, why did that set in motion a challenging episode? Um, is it because you were already downstairs and she remembered that she wanted her slippers on? Was it because she wanted her slippers on and you said no? So I'd, I'd need to know more about that unsolved problem and, and why it is a problem in the first place. Um, but wanting slippers on before we come downstairs is as good an unsolved problem as any. It would be on my list. Not because it sets in motion a challenging episode every day, but because it sets in motion challenging episodes some days. Now, what I'm usually recommending that people do to figure out what the unsolved problems are is the following. First, when you're using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems to figure out what skills a child is lacking, when you're filling it out and you're thinking, yes, that lagging skill is definitely coming into play, you have another question to ask, and that is, well, what are some examples of that lagging skill coming into play? And the minute you start talking about examples, you're talking about unsolved problems. So let's say the lagging skill is difficulty deviating from rules, routine. That's on the lagging skill section of the ALSIP. 
And then when we start thinking of examples of that, we might have uh, wanting slippers on before you go downstairs, um, needing to have the same thing for breakfast every day. Um, I don't know what the examples might be, and I'm not even sure if wanting slippers on before you go downstairs would be a good example of that lagging skill. What I do know is that when we're talking about lagging skills, we are often simultaneously talking about unsolved problems. The minute we start talking about examples of those lagging skills, we're talking about specific unsolved problems. So that's one way to identify unsolved problems. And just re re reminder, it doesn't have to be an unsolved problem that's setting in motion a challenging episode every day, just some days. We can also keep a log. I strongly recommend that parents keep a log for a week of any situation in which there was a disagreement with your child, in which your child balked at something that you were asking them to do, um, in which your child became somewhat agitated, in which your child became very agitated. We're not looking just for the big agitation ones. We're looking for the little agitation ones as well, because you never know when a little agitation is going to become a lot of agitation. So I don't distinguish based on how bad it got. I distinguish on the basis of did it have the potential to get bad. There's your list of unsolved problems. And if you keep that log for a week, you're going to have a very reliable list of the unsolved problems that are setting in motion challenging episodes most often. So you've, now you've got your list. Now you have to think about what your priorities are. Which unsolved problems do I want to start working on first? Because oftentimes parents and any other caregiver, want to work on everything at once, and that's too much. And the more you try to work on everything at once, the less you actually have to show for your efforts. So you're picking two or three unsolved problems as your top priorities. And often the top priorities are the ones that are the unsolved problems that are setting in motion challenging episodes most often. Sometimes you identify an unsolved problem, but it's not setting in motion challenging episodes very often. And the ones that it's setting in motion, well, those are not the ones that you're most concerned about. They would be lower priorities. It's the ones that are setting in motion challenging episodes frequently, or the challenging episodes are very intense on those unsolved problems. Those are the ones that you want to prioritize. So I don't know if wanting her slippers on before you came downstairs is was an outlier. You'd never seen it before, um, in which case it would simply get added to our pre-existing list of unsolved problems. But the important thing here is it's important to have a pre-existing list of unsolved problems and important to organize the effort so you know what you're working on and you know what you're not working on and what you are working on, you're working on proactively. I hope that answer helps. Let's move on to another email. Uh, I like this one. And I'm, I've got these in no particular order today. There's no theme or order to them. We're just going to be bouncing around from topic to topic today. Uh, what can I do if the principal at my son's elementary school won't consider anything but school suspension? I love that question. Um, well, you know, I, I do have an easy answer, but it would cost $30. And, you know, it's not necessarily the best way to go, but it's a possibility. But I, I just want to call attention to it. You know, Lives in the Balance has on its website a feature called Care Packages. Uh, for $30, Lives in the Balance 
which, by the way, makes almost nothing on these, and I don't make anything on these. So this is not sort of a profit scheme. This is a let's get the word out scheme. Uh, when you buy a care package and tell us who to send it to, the person who gets it gets an anonymously sent care package. They don't know that you sent it. It's anonymous. What does the care package contain? Let me see if I can remember. Uh, a copy of The Explosive Child, a copy of Lost at School, five copies of the uh, Assessment of Lagging Skills and Unsolved Problems, five copies of the Plan B flowchart, a one-pager describing lives in the balance, a one-pager describing the collaborative problem-solving approach, a copy of an article that I published in Educational Leadership um, back in 2010, some other stuff, too, that I can't remember, and a um, very nice letter from me and Lives in the Balance saying in the first sentence, someone who cares thought you might benefit from the enclosed materials. So one option is to send the principal anonymously a care package. And you know what? Maybe he'll open it. Actually, I don't know if it's a he or a she, but I'll pretend it's a he. Maybe he'll open it. Maybe he'll actually read some of the stuff in it. Maybe some of the stuff he reads will give him a new set of lenses and help him question his existing discipline practices. Because let's face it, suspension as the only tool in our toolbox um, isn't going to help many kids. And, you know, there are some principals who don't give up suspending. They still reserve the right, but they've got so many other tools in their toolbox, and the tools that are in their toolbox are effective that they don't really have to use the suspension tool because they don't need it anymore. That's right. When you are figuring out what skills a student is lacking and doing it routinely, and you are figuring out what unsolved problems are setting in motion challenging episodes. And when you are doing Plan B proactively and people are getting good at it, when you're doing all that, you're going to be doing a whole lot less suspension. But often that starts with the right lenses. So a care package is an option. Another option is to talk to other people in the school about how best to approach the principal or who else to approach about the problem of the way the school discipline program is working and the students who are getting lost because of it, and seek some guidance from people in the building who may know better the principal and how the building works and who's responsible for what, and um, they may be able to give you some guidance on how to begin advocating on behalf of challenging kids and their caregivers. And, um, you know, lives in the balance has begun um, its advocacy work. Care packages are a good example of that. Um, you being able to sign the Bill of Rights for Challenging Kids on the Lives in the Balance website is an example of that. But there is much more, take my word for it, in the pipeline. We just haven't launched some things yet, but there is much more in the pipeline about ways to help people advocate on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids, not only in their own school, but in lots of places. So I hope that those answers help. Another email. Uh, Dr. Green, I have a challenging kid that I'm trying to do Plan B with. 
I ran into difficulty when his problems and mine did not match. His problems were around math and how he didn't understand it. And in parentheses, it says totally legitimate concern, which we talked about. However, my concerns are around some very concerning behaviors he is having with others, including shoving a student heart into a glass window, poor physical boundaries to the point of possible sexual harassment with girls, inappropriate language with sexually explicit content. How do we put together a plan B with such different goals if he, and if he can't seem to see how the concerns adults might have adults have might lead him to more trouble if not curbed all right so there's many questions in there uh first of all perfectly great to involve the child in the generation of unsolved problems in thinking about what problems need to be solved perfectly great um just just because adults know about some unsolved problems doesn't mean the adult is the only source for unsolved problems. Other people, including the kid, can provide us with the list, items on the list of unsolved problems. So I, I like that he is um, has some unsolved problems that he'd like to get solved. That's, that's fantastic. Second, um, it sounds like, if I'm reading the email correctly, um, you're trying to try to, try to address all of the unsolved problems in the same plan B. And uh, no can do. Um, you're going to have separate plan Bs for each unsolved problems. So him not understanding math is not, an, is not a concern. It's an unsolved problem. It's, and it's going to require its own separate plan B. Um, concerning behaviors he's having with others, Shoving a student hard into a glass window, um, we'd want to know what unsolved problem set that behavior in motion, and that's a different unsolved problem. Poor physical boundaries to the point of possible sexual harassment with girls. Now, that's, um, that's going to be a high-priority unsolved problems. That's one we'd want to start working on sooner than later. Inappropriate language, but it's a separate plan B. You're not going to solve that problem while you're talking about the fact that he doesn't understand math. Um, different plan Bs for all three. And inappropriate language with sexually explicit content, completely different unsolved problem, completely different plan B. So you've given us sort of four unsolved problems here. All four are going to require their own plan B. It is not going to be possible to solve them all in the same plan B. It's one unsolved problem at a time for each plan B. Now, here's, this, here's the last part of your question. What if he can't understand why adults might have concerns about um, some of these unsolved problems? Well, first of all, it's good to note, if this is true, that he really doesn't see the point why the adults have concerns about that because that gives me some information about um, the challenging kid um, and about skills he might be lacking. And, of course, one of the goals of Plan B then would be to see if we can help him take adult concerns into account in the pursuit of a solution that would address those concerns. Um, but seldom do I find that that's the case. Uh, seldom do I find 
that um well and it sounds like what you're trying to make him see is that um he's going to get in more trouble if we don't address these now i, I don't know if i don't know if he has to see that to work on the unsolved problem i don't know if he needs to understand that he's going to get in more trouble later if we don't solve this problem now i think that um some sometimes that's an overrated concern on the part of the adult aren't we more concerned about how the physical boundary issue is going to make other people feel aren't we concerned about how the inappropriate language is going to make other people feel that that it makes them feel uncomfortable that they don't want to be around him when he talks that way um, aren't we concerned about the fact that shoving a student hard into a glass window is unsafe and could possibly be, do physical harm to a child so while it may be the case that if the student continues to exhibit these behaviors he's going to get in more trouble further down the road um, I'm not sure if that's the best expression of the adult concerns I think we have others I hope that answer was helpful. Shall we move on to another one? We are uh, slow on the phone lines today. Let me give you the call-in number again, just in case that's the problem. 347-994-2981. Let's move on to another email. Luckily, we have lots of them. Um, ooh, this is a good one. Dr. Green, I just started reading the information on the Lives in the Balance website and came across a section that discusses how to respond to challenges based on lagging skills versus lagging motivation. Is there any way to identify the difference between lagging skills and lagging motivation? It's a great question, and quite frankly, it has more to do with the lenses that you're wearing. Um, but I will say this, since trying to give kids the incentive to do well is really very commonplace, if that approach to trying to help hasn't worked, there's some decent chance that the wrong lenses are being worn. Um, that's one potential way to think about this. Um, motivational strategies haven't worked. I wonder why. I find that people see lagging motivation in practically everything. In fact, um, I was describing this today to the students in my class. Um, I was saying to them, um, here's the motivational attributional error. First, we say we know the student has the skills to do what we're asking them to do. Usually, that's an erroneous assumption. Then, we say, well, he's not doing it. Then we say, this is sort of a three-step process, then we say, well, the reason he's not doing it, if he has the skills to be doing it, is because he must not be motivated to do it. And that's a very commonplace way of thinking. I also find that it is usually wrong. And the wrong part is that the child had the skills to be doing it in the first place. But look what making that assumption sets in motion. If you assume that he has the skills to be doing what you want him to be doing, then it's very hard to come up with any other explanations for why he wouldn't be doing it besides the fact that he's not motivated. But what if you're wrong? What if he really is lacking crucial skills? How do you figure that out? 
you print yourself out a copy of the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. You go down the list of lagging skills and you decide which ones apply to this particular child. And here's here's the good news. If you are trying to help a particular challenging child, I'm willing to bet the house he's lacking skills. How do you figure out what skills a child is lacking? By thinking about the skills that many kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges are lacking and decide which ones apply. And once you start figuring out that a student is lacking crucial cognitive skills, thinking that he's lacking motivation is unlikely to apply anymore. Now, are there students who are lacking skills, who've been lacking skills for a very long time, have been doing poorly for a very long time, and um, therefore have lost faith that anybody's ever going to be able to figure out what's getting in their way, have lost faith that anybody's ever going to be able to help? Do those students frequently look like they are not only lacking skills but also lacking motivation? Yes. How do we help them look more motivated again? By figuring out what skills they're lacking. By figuring out what unsolved problems are setting in motion their challenging episodes. By getting rid of all that punitive stuff that we do when we are deeply into the motivational attributional error. And once those problems start getting solved and we have different lenses on and we're being less punitive and this student knows it and things are starting to get better, I think you're going to start seeing motivation for doing well again. As I always say, kids who are lacking skills and motivation aren't born. They are created. How do they start out? They start out lacking skills and having motivation. But if we don't figure that out, and if we don't solve the problems that are setting in motion their challenging episodes, and if we don't teach them the skills that they're lacking, then slowly but surely their motivation will drip away. Where do I come across kids like that? In prisons, in residential facilities where kids have bounced from one facility to another, in inpatient units, and in many in-school suspension rooms, which tend to be populated by the same kids week after week. That'll cause your motivation to drip away, but that's not the way the kid was born. We did that. Now, how do we get him back? We put on different lenses, we engage in different practices, and we set in motion things going better. That's how we do it. Thank you for your email. I hope that answers the question. Um, and we do have a caller. And as always, callers take top priority in this program. So here we go from area code 978. How are you today? I'm very good. Thank you. I'm a, I'm a big calling. follower. I'm a big follower of yours. And Great. Um, I have two questions for you. One um, could potentially be a little bit off topic, so feel free to say we don't want to address that today. All right. Um, and that one is last um, last month uh, in the Lancet was a discuss or an article about this study that was done with respect to um, an elimination diet and the behavior of children with ADHD. 
Um, I wanted to see, I, I, I think in many ways that applies to everybody that is probably listening to this show. Um, well, maybe not everybody because they're not all ADD, but um, I, I wanted to get your your opinion, I guess, on that. I'm not a big, I guess, believer in it, um, but it seems like the study supposedly was well put together. It's getting all sorts of buzz on the news and, and wanted to get your take on that if, if you care to uh, spend a moment on it. I'm happy to spend a moment on it. Do, do, do you want to tell people what an elimination diet is or do you want me to? Um, you can. You're, you're probably more versed in it than I am. Well, not, not, not professionally well-versed, but um, have had personal experience, not with me. Okay. I, I wish I had an easier time eliminating things from my diet. I wouldn't be 30 pounds overweight at this point. But that's not what elimination diet is, where you start eliminating certain foods in a very systematic way to find out if you are having a bad reaction to those foods or are allergic to them. How did I do? I think that's a perfect way of ex- explaining it. In Good. This particular, and I have to, go ahead, sorry. In this particular article, the, the diet that they put these children on was really limited. I think it was like six foods or something like that for a period of Got five it. weeks. And everybody said, you know, it would be completely unreasonable for you to put your child on this type of a diet. You know, they they just wouldn't survive on it. But it did go to show that they had, um, I think, uh, 60% of the children that um, were on the elimination diet, a lot of their, you know, problem behaviors essentially went away and yes. then came back as they introduced the foods back in. Very interesting. And I can't say that I've read the article, so I'm wondering – um, if, if I'd love to see it. So um, if you don't mind sending me the link to it, if there is one. Yes, there is. I would love to um, read up on it. So I'm talking about this. Uh, so I can't talk in an educated way about this particular study. But let me just say the following. Uh, let me let's pose the following question to the people who are listening. Does it make good sense that what we put in our bodies would impact our behavior? First of all, most of us went to college, and so we are aware of the fact that what we put in our bodies affected our behavior. Uh, What what I put in my body in college certainly affected my behavior, and so um, most people aren't going to have a hard time appreciating that. In this case, of course, we're talking about foods, and it has been my experience that there are some kids who, um, because of reactions to certain foods, and wheat comes to mind, but there are many, many others. Sugar dyes were were prominent back during my training years um, and have faded somewhat, but are still in the mix. But then comes the next question. If we acknowledge that what we put in our bodies could very well impact our behavior and that that makes very good sense, then we should also acknowledge that there are some people as is the case with almost everything, who are going to have a stronger reaction to some foods than to others, and to the point that that reaction can set the stage for some rather impressive changes in their behavior. So I don't have any problem with either of those two premises and have actually worked with kids in whom changes in diet were perhaps, and as much as I love Plan B, there have been a smattering of kids that I've worked with for whom changes in diet were, quite frankly, the most central part to getting on top of their behavioral challenges. 
Now, do I think that that's the case with the vast majority of behaviorally challenging kids? No. Do I think that we need to be very open to that possibility um, in any behaviorally challenging kid? Yes. And I also think that there are other things that are important to ask about that frequently don't get asked about but that are very much worth asking about besides diet and because these are things that are just related to wellness in general. One of the things I'm always careful to ask about is sleep. So um, I think diet and sleep and other things along those lines that are sort of just related to wellness in general are right there in the mix for things that we need to think about when we are contemplating why a child is behaving in a way that um, isn't exactly up to snuff and, and what we'd be hoping for from that child. So I don't know if that's the opinion you were looking for. The next, the next opinion on it, by the way, is a more practical one, and that is as an intervention, uh, how feasible is it to alter a child's diet in a way that is so dramatic that we see the behavioral cha uh, changes that you were describing in the study? Now, here's the interesting thing. Some folks have to change their diet because of allergies, for example, to wheat that would be life-threatening if they didn't change their diet. And those are people who I know who, quite frankly, don't go near wheat and wouldn't touch it. With a kid, those are adults mostly, with a kid, sometimes there are dietary changes that are necessary for health reasons. Um, I think it's just as compelling for behavioral reasons, although sometimes that gets short shrift. Does that answer the question? Yes, it does. Thank you. you bet. What was question number two? Okay, question number two was um, we talk a lot about um, collaborative problem solving with my son. He is nine, and so he knows, you know, what plan A is. He knows what plan B is. He knows what plan C is, and, you know, we try as proactive as we can. We we try to be proactive with it. Sometimes I find myself um, threatening plan A if he doesn't follow through with what he agreed to with plan B. Very interesting. And sometimes it works. You know, I try to, you know, we try to say, well, we, you know, we came to this agreement and we know that the alternative is going to be me trying to force you to do it. So, but then I feel like I'm plan Aing the plan B. Well, you are. But now here's the question. <laughs> That's exactly what you're doing. Do you want to give us a specific example, though? It would help. Um, getting out of bed in the morning. So, um, or, or maybe it's it's a, a combination. So we'll we'll put him to bed. He likes to read before he goes to bed. Um, it's time to shut the lights off. He'll say he would like to read for a few minutes. So we'll have a little negotiation. We'll say, okay, well, you know, if you stay up later, it's going to be harder for you to get up in the morning. Um, but he says, no, just just give me 10 minutes, and I promise I'll get up in the morning, and I won't give you any crap about it. Mm. Okay. 10 minutes comes along. He shuts the lights off. Fine. I think pretty good plan B. Everybody's happy. Everybody's gone to bed. Next morning, um, goes to get up. He does give me crap about getting up. And then, you know, I'll say, well, right, last night, you know, remember we had this we worked on it together. We planned beat it about you going to bed. You have to stick up to your promise. And, you know, he'll give me a little bit of crap for a little while, and then eventually he will get up. But 
I, I feel like, you know, I'm kind of forcing, you know, forcing the result. I mean, maybe that isn't a good example of, of how to use it, but that's kind of what we did. Got it. So ready? Yes. All right. Him having difficulty getting up in the morning is a highly predictable unsolved problem. Yes? Yes. Good. And him wanting to perhaps stay up a little later than you would like him to is a highly predictable unsolved problem. Yes? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Certainly, given the choice, he would rather stay up to read, yes. Got it. So here's a few pointers. First of all, they may not be related to each other. They may not, they may not have anything to do with each other. He, he did turn the light off when he said he would. Yep. The problem is, so, so number one, I would treat them as two completely separate unsolved problems. That's number one. Yep. I, I wouldn't combine them. But then number two, um, and just to say, this is a little pointer. Um, well, actually, it could be a big pointer. Um, the, the discussion was taking place emergently. Mm-hmm. And if it's a highly predictable unsolved problem, I think we'd greatly prefer for, the, for it to be being discussed proactively, not emergently. Yep. And that's the, that's the, that's the um, advantage of identifying unsolved problems ahead of time. And, and your getting up in the morning unsolved problem is very predictable. It sounds like that's one that happens with some frequency. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all I'm saying is, number one, let's do it proactively. But here's the big question, and I, this may be the main take-home message. I think he um, agreed to a solution that wasn't realistic. True. I think that him saying, give me 10 more minutes and I'll get up in the morning without any problem, is highly unlikely on that day or any other day to solve the trouble getting up in the morning unsolved problem. And the interesting thing is, in the plan B that was done, the problem of waking up in the morning really wasn't the the primary topic of that discussion. And that's why I would encourage separating the two. But I think that what we're waiting for, and so so the big issue here is he agreed to something that he shouldn't have agreed to. Those 10 minutes extra of reading are not going to solve the problem of him having trouble getting up in the morning. Oh, absolutely. It was funny so, because it was his, it was his suggestion. Well, now like, that's oh, an interesting you know, like thing. He's, you know, he's like, oh, I'll get up. I mean, I certainly, <laughs> I certainly <laughs> Kid, would never expect him right. to do it. But, but, but since he thing. suggested Kid, it, I said, okay, well. Right. Well, here's rule of thumb number one. Just because a kid suggests something doesn't mean it's realistic and mutually satisfactory. (laughs) True. (laughs) Because kids are as famous for proposing unrealistic and not mutually satisfactory solutions as adults are. So how do you get them to realize that? Well, because we did have a short conversation about it, saying, "Are you really, really, you know, are you really going to do it? I promise, I promise, I swear, I swear, you know, like." Right. But but here's the interesting thing. What what that if I was to paraphrase here, letting me read ten minutes more will be the solution, the reliable solution to me waking up in the morning 
and getting out of bed, which is something I have a lot of trouble with. And when I state it that way, it couldn't possibly be true. Right. So an important rule of thumb is just because a kid or an adult is enthusiastic about solution doesn't make it mutually satisfactory and realistic. How would I do it? I would do proactive plan B on the unsolved problem of waking up in the morning. Because here's the interesting thing. I don't know anything about, because, because this was emergency plan B and it was more focused on the going to sleep at what time issue than it was on the waking up in the morning issue. Right. There's a lot of information that I would get from doing proactive plan B on the waking up in the morning issue that I couldn't possibly have gotten when I was talking about the um, going to sleep at a certain time issue. So number one, I'd separate the two. Number two, I wouldn't do it emergently. Number three, we need a lot of information about what's getting in the way of him waking up in the morning and getting out of bed. I have none at the moment. Right. And because I have none, I really don't know what problem I'm trying to solve as it relates to waking up in the morning because I really don't know anything about his concern or perspective on that. Mm-hmm. So I'm suggesting, number one, separating the two unsolved problems. Number two, this needs to be proactive. Um, number three, I, I don't know what I'm working on if I don't know what I'm working on, and it's the empathy step of proactive plan B while I get the information I'm looking for about why he's having trouble getting out of bed in the morning. And I guess number three or four, whatever number I'm on, <laughs> we don't want to agree to any solution, no matter how enthusiastic the person who proposed it is, without doing our analysis of the degree to which the solution is truly realistic and truly mutually satisfactory. You don't want to run with that. Here's the interesting thing. Going back to your original question, not the diet question. Right. Yep. But you said you find yourself doing plan A when he won't follow through on plan B. As I'm listening to this story, he's not following through on that solution. It's not going to happen. Right. He can't do it. We don't know enough about the problem of getting up in the morning. And it was sort of a false promise. And I don't think he meant it to be. I don't know right. your oh, son Oh, no, I think all. he was very genuine when he said it. He had the best of intentions, right? Absolutely. But, so, but the last thing we'd want you doing, so now let me describe the whole thing. We really didn't do plan B on the waking up in the morning issue. Right. And he agreed to a solution that he couldn't possibly do. And now we find you doing plan A. Here's my attitude. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do plan A on that. I mean, that, that morning I might have, but as an unsolved problem, it's still both unsolved and unexplored. Right. My, my solution to that is proactive plan B on the getting out of bed in the morning unsolved problem. Let's see what we can learn from him about the problem, and let's come up with a solution that is more realistic than what he was able to come up with in the first place. And just by way of reminder to everybody who's listening, he doesn't have to be the one who comes up with the solution. It, it, it doesn't matter who comes up with the solution. Right. It, the team is coming up with the solution. Y'all are working on this together. Y'all are a team. Um, that's my suggestion. Okay. Thank you very what much. What do you think? Thank you for calling. I B- hope that helps. We'll helped. try it. <laughs> Thank you. Good. You bet. Bye-bye. You know, it's always an interesting question. Um, should we do plan A when a kid doesn't follow through on the solution that he um, that we came up with with plan B? And, um, boy, I, I don't think that's a good reason to be doing plan A. The reason I'd be 
if, if a solution isn't working, that means that there's something about it that wasn't realistic, something about it that wasn't mutually satisfactory, something about how we did Plan B that led to a solution that wasn't realistic and mutually satisfactory. My advice, um, not to do Plan A at that moment, but to go back to Plan B at that moment and figure out how we came to a solution that was not realistic, not mutually satisfactory, how that happened, and what concerns did we perhaps not enter into consideration? And let's take a look at our solution and see if it needs to be revised so that we can come up with a better one the next time. Solutions that don't work set the stage for the solutions that do because solutions that don't work provide us with information that will help us come up with solutions that eventually do. Hope this was a helpful program. That's the goal. Thanks for listening in. I'll be back next week with another collaborative problem-solving at home program. Hope you'll join me then. Have a good week.